0: we are live welcome back to SwitchCast. thank you for joining us tonight i am your host doug tabbitt founder of switch cars and cannonball run record holder with arnie toman and tonight we're going to be talking about ethics ethics in the car business and i guess that translates to business in general but i think the used and new car business has a special set of uh I don't know if you want to call it ethics. Some people may say that there are no ethics in that business. But uh, anyway, we're going to talk about it. And uh, we're going to focus uh, not on scams. This is not another scam week. Uh, There are plenty of those out there. But we're talking about legitimate dealers and legitimate transactions and just when they get a little bit shifty and what's right and what's wrong. And joining me tonight is my friend and... One might say ethicist, Ed Bolian. He certainly has a high standard of of ethics and uh, little patience for those who who do not meet those standards, and justifiably so. And uh, so we're going to have some fun tonight. Uh, If you'd like to join us, we're not doing call-ins tonight, mainly because Ed is our call-in and we haven't tested the feature to see if we can have multiple people talk with each other yet, Uh, but you can post your comments and questions in the comment flow of wherever you're watching live, YouTube or Facebook, and we will do our best to get to those and discuss them tonight. So Ed, welcome.
1: Thank you. Glad to be back. I appreciate you having me.
0: Oh, no. You are a repeat guest, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Shoot. We have a tradition we started here that repeat guests, we have to do a shot of Malort after the show. <laughs> but Mark Spence isn't here, so there's no Malort, so I'm good. You don't we'll have Malort we'll there, right do you?
1: I do not, Yeah, as that's, that's surprising as that may seem. <laughs>
0: You have higher class liquor.
1: That's right. that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, well, this is a this is a fun show, I guess. It was inspired by uh, by two different situations today, and uh, Ed is a ironic guest of choice, I guess, and I'll explain why. but um, the first situation was as simple as our our guest for tonight. Canceled on us. And uh, this was the second time in a row. He was supposed to be with us last week, and we were going to talk about the, the next generation of car enthusiasts compared to, you know, kind of the, the old guard and the Concord judges and the, the uptight people that uh, may or may not be ruining it for some of the younger generation. And I was looking forward to that discussion, but uh, I guess he was not as much as I was and uh, chose different priorities over. Uh, these particular commitments he had made. So uh, that uh, that chapped my ass a wee bit. And uh, so it just got me thinking about uh, what it means to honor your your word and and when that's important and when it's no big deal and how much of a big deal it is. And uh, the, the second scenario ties into something and I owe everybody a little bit of a, an apology because last week I said, I'm going to explain why we've been on show hiatus for a bit and I totally didn't. A couple of you called me out on it, rightfully so. And the reason is because I bought a garage. Now, It doesn't seem like that should be a reason for taking a a few weeks off of the podcast, but uh, it it was a a fairly big life event. Uh, I did find my dream garage and my wife's dream house happened to be on the same property and uh, included in the deal. So in the last month or so, we've been frantically scrambling to get our house on the market, sold, get the new house bought, and go through all that is involved with that type of transaction. So we're very, very excited. Uh, We have six garage spaces now and uh, can't wait to have the man cave at home. Uh, But it's certainly taking a a little bit of a toll on us personally. It's it's definitely a big life move. Um, But in all of that, that reached its head today because we are uh, closing next week and the mortgage company just gave us the runaround, and it really came down to the same thing of, of ethics. And the only problem was the rate we were quoted was 4.9%, and magically it became almost 59 when it came to sign the documents. And I said, what's the deal? That's not the rate we were quoted, and we have it in writing that as soon as we get an executed sales contract, that rate will be locked in. And now you're saying uh, they changed their tune and said, well, we couldn't lock the rate until underwriting was complete. And that really bothered me because I was told two different things. And that uh, just made the hair on the back of my neck rise up. And I have a lot of that, unfortunately, because I'm getting older. Um, so it just got me thinking more about ethics and about what it means to honor your word and, and the mortgage company is not honoring their word and it would have cost us $40,000 in interest to take the rate that they were offering us a second time around and so we told them to go jump in a lake and I had to come up with all the money to buy the house in cash because we didn't have any other options. So uh, that was my day today, uh, buying our dream house and uh, getting screwed over and Uh, because of somebody else's lack of ethics and something that to them really didn't matter. And, and, you know, it wasn't anything illegal, but to me it was a big deal because they said one thing and did another. However, Ed is an ironic guest because I have uh, come to, I don't want to say come to my standard of ethics, but in the car business, for me at least, uh, ethics has been a journey of discovery because um, when I was 19, I partnered up with a guy I met at college and started a motorcycle business, invested a lot of money that I didn't have with him, lost all of it. And he was a real, I don't want to say a scam artist, but he was shisty. And he taught me how to lie, but not to boldface lie, just to kind of you know, make it a way of life in order to gain an advantage over other people in business. And it was all white lies. It was all stuff that's like, well, this is just how you do business. This is how negotiations happen. And it took me years and years to literally untrain that from my vocabulary and from my psyche. And I thought I had done a good job of that. And I really hadn't because I was still just being vague about, uh, you know, how things went uh, how things went down with deals. And Ed was the recipient of that because he offered me a Porsche GT3 RS 4 liter. Was it 4 liter? No, it was a paint to sample. That's what it was. And I had a buyer for it, and so I committed to the car, but I didn't give him a, a contingent commitment. I didn't say I was buying it for a buyer or I'm waiting on their commitment. It was just like, yep, I'll get the deal done. And uh, my buyer bailed, and so I bailed. And Ed said I'm going to let you think about that. Uh he was very smooth in how he worded it. He said I'm going to let you think about that and and see if that's a wise decision or something to that. <laughs> What did you say, Ed?
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was something to that effect. I so said I'm going to I'm going to let you make sure that's the decision that you want to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and to me it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh and it it uh it took I guess losing Ed's respect and my credibility uh, with somebody I respected to actually for that like last bit of nuanced, uh, I guess, nuanced lying to to get out of my business practices, and it had to hit me smack in the face. Because again, none of the things were anything that like really hurt anyone or really mattered, but at the same time it wasn't being 100% truthful. As Ed, you're saying of the truth is, what was you saying about somebody else? The truth is less truthful than, uh, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was in one of your videos. Anyway, so I had to come crawling back to Ed and say, you know what, this, I really screwed up and he was gracious. Uh, but that was a turning point for me in terms of not only how I uh, perceive my word that I give to somebody, but also the standard I hold other people to. And since then, I've come to a really, really high standard of just like, I don't, I'm not gonna put up with BS. Like, if you tell me you're gonna do something, then just do it and don't make excuses. And if you have a lame excuse, it's just kind of like, all right, cool. Well, I can't trust you ever again, and that's it. So... Yeah, that's the backstory, Ed. Thank you for the second chance. Thank you for helping teach me some ethics, <laughs> and uh, let's see what we can uh, work out tonight.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and uh, uh, apology accepted. I it was a it was an interesting time in my life because that happened within a few months of when I had left working at the dealership. I worked at Motorcars of Georgia, which is now Motorcars of Atlanta. We were uh, a new car, Lamborghini, Aston, McLaren, Lotus, Steeler, but we also sold a lot of used cars. And so after I left, I left on purpose. I just didn't want to be a lifer in the car business. And I also did not want to be a car broker. And all my customers (laughs) wanted me to be a car broker. And um, I told Hall No over and over again, but one guy uh, who happens to be the richest person I know well, asked me if i would sell his paint to sample gg3 rs and so that was the reason that i had come to you because i knew you had an appetite for such things and uh it was a, a deal that i had done reluctantly and the last thing that i wanted out of it was to look like i couldn't be trusted when i told a guy a car was sold after it was supposed to have been sold and so It amplified the stakes, let's say, on my side because I was still doing it under duress and I was not by any means happy to be doing it. So when things went awry, I think I I, I said, and I think this is really what we should talk about, is that, uh, look, this this was really a dealer-to-dealer transaction because you knew me as a car dealer and you were committing to it as a car dealer and in dealer-to-dealer transactions, your word is all you have because no one has the time to take deposits and really fish for commitment. You're either buying the car or you aren't. And the moment that you can't be trusted, I said, if this is the decision you're going to make, you will have earned the right to absolutely, under no circumstances, ever call me again.
0: Yeah. That was that was pretty much it. And, and I think I justified it in that, and again, it all came down to how it was communicated. And it was not a failure to finish the deal. It was a failure of communication on my end. So I justified it because I had found out information about the car and I said, well, the condition is not awesome, blah, blah, blah. But none of those contingencies were laid out in advance. I never said, I'll buy the car subject to my due diligence or... I'll buy the car subject to my client committing. Because if I had, it would have been that simple because I would have laid out the terms for you and I didn't. I was I was trying to hold the deal together as I think many brokers do, they'll give a little bit too strong of a commitment based on something else and uh yeah. I um it, you know, and if that same thing happened today based on what I've learned, I would have said shoot I didn't communicate that well, so I'm going to buy the car anyway, even though my buyer backed out. And since you're in my uh, uh, deal gone awry, I've had to do that multiple times. Um, even some scenarios where I told the seller I was committing on behalf of somebody else, um, and my somebody else went south, and I just said, "Listen, I, you know, we we worked on this deal and." I'm. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'll just buy the car anyway. Um, it's not always easy to do that, and uh, especially with limited funds that I have. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it. It's there's a there's an inherent um, weight applied to dealers' words when they give a commitment.
1: Well, exactly. And, that's, and the reason that that exists is logical, right? We're selling cars usually in a dealer-to-dealer circumstance where there's still some profit left on the bone. It has to be easy. And I tell buyers the exact same thing. Like, nobody cares why you're offering the number that you are. No one cares why you think you're the best buyer. Why, all that matters is how committed are you what is your number, and how does this transaction close? Mm-hmm. And the more efficiently you can communicate that, the more likely you are to get your lowball offer accepted. Because if it seems like it's going to be a backbreaking headache in order to close your deal, they're going to hold strong to all the gross in the world because it isn't worth the trouble. Whereas right. if you just say, look, I'm familiar with all the problems. I know what your car is. I know what the cars are in general. I don't need an inspection. I don't need anything else. We're done. If you do this deal.
0: And that's how you get such incredible deals on cars because <laughs> you roll the dice. Right. Yes, but
1: that's what I tell people over. And it's not a secret, but you're exactly right. That I'm not competing against other people that are offering those terms.
0: Right. Right. But you take on an incredible amount of risk in that scenario as well. But I price Could, it in. Yeah. But, and, and you don't have contingencies whereas everybody else does. And absolutely you, correct and yeah. you wire money when you say you're going to
1: <laughs> that is correct yes yep and it, it it makes the world go round I mean there have been a couple of deals that bit me um, but you know I, it's less than five percent it's probably less than two percent that I really have a problem with
0: yeah yeah but it
1: yeah. but it but it usually I would say it saves me 20 to thirty percent under the market
0: And that's huge. That's huge numbers. Yeah. Now, how often do you get burnt, though? Because, you know, there's another ethical discussion. So there's one about honoring your word. And then there's another, which dealers tend to love to screw each other in terms of, uh, let's say, accurately describing condition. And, you know, when dealers sell to other dealers, there's this just assumed, well, it's as is. But they seem to take that and say, well, that's justification for me to totally misrepresent the car. So how often has that been an issue for you when you're buying these storied cars from less than reputable dealers often without contingencies?
1: I would say it's, it's the only time it really bit me hard was on Megan's second Range Rover. Uh, that was a 2010 autobiography that I bought, I guess, in 2016. It was already pretty old and out of warranty. And um, the guy explicitly lied, saying that it did not need timing chains, which is what they're all known to need. And mm-hmm. so he lied very specifically. And so everything is as is, but is is as described. So if he had told me nothing, then it's 100% my problem. If he tells me something that is a lie, it becomes his problem. And the same is true for any transaction, because I had described that GT3 RS to you as being in excellent condition, as represented by RM. And maybe when it showed up, I hadn't seen the car in person. It was described to me by a guy who would have made it right if something he said to me was wrong, so I wasn't worried about it. But you said that there were some posts that it had some rock chips. I don't know if they were fixed. Uh, We don't, we'll never know because we didn't see the car at that point. I described it to you as best I did, but if it had shown up and it had been with issues, then you would have had zero obligation to it because that's not what I said. And I think that's the same, you know, compartment of ethics in the car business is that if you describe it, it's gotta be what you said. If you keep it vague, then you have no obligation, but you're hoping to earn more money by describing it in a certain way.
0: And that's why dealers love auctions, right? Because they can just send it to the auction, and in some sense it's up to the auction to do the condition report and to figure out the issues. Um, Obviously, if they send it green light, that's kind of like you know, auctions use the green light, yellow light, red light, where red light is just as is, you know, no arbitration. You can't come back on us. Green light is full arbitration. You know, everything's supposed to work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But I think people pawn off a lot of bad cars, and this is why auction cars get the bad rap that they do is because dealers say, well, I can just use the auction as a middleman, and it's, you know, don't ask, don't tell type of scenario. I might know what's wrong with it, but I can just put it at the auction and it's on everybody else to figure out what I already know.
1: Exactly. Yes. And I mean that's a buyer beware situation and it unfortunately right now you're just not getting deals on auction cars enough where you ha- where you can accept that kind of risk.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of auction cars, we've touched on not touched on. We have totally grabbed and manhandled the subject of the, the 2018 mint green GT three, which Ed has tried to buy a couple times. I think he wanted it for, for car Trek. Um, we didn't get it, but, uh, that GT three has been passed around and around from dealer to dealer. It's gone through auctions. The condition report went from 3.7 to 4.2 or 4.8 or something back down to 2.3 all over the board depending on who's inspecting it and maybe what inspector gets a $100 bill in their back pocket. I don't know if, if it works that way, but uh, it's very possible. Um, but when I outed that car as being what it was, the reason it was such a big deal is because all the dealers that had had it, and especially McLaren Charlotte at the time, were not representing it to be what it was, and they were denying any knowledge of it when that information was very publicly available, most notably through VINWIKI. And the car just had a pretty sordid history, and nobody was calling it for what it was, and the dealers just kept passing it on down the line. When I called it out, a bunch of dealers, brokers, whatever, some of whom had been involved with the car, some of whom just knew the people kind of gave me some uh, not so veiled threats to basically just mind your own business. What does it matter? They're just trying to make a profit. Like if it's not your deal or they didn't screw you, just stay out of it. Ed, what's your, what's your thoughts? I mean, you've followed that car and that whole story. What's kind of your input on, on that mentality?
1: Well, you have to decide where the line is between your righteous crusade and fundamentally sabotaging the business activities of someone else. Uh, it wasn't thing, a righteous
0: crusade. To... It was it was just for the Instagram likes. Let's let's be clear here.
1: Well, that's fair. I was, <laughs> was going to call you out that explicitly on it, but I always appreciate falling you on your own sword. I I think there's also an aspect that I think we should talk about is the blissful ignorance that is possible in some vacuums and what i mean was well the reason i wanted the car the reason you would have owned the car is that it really was fine it was going to be an okay car because the damage that was done was from a homeless person living in it and somebody half-heartedly attempting to wide body the car and somebody without a great body shop putting it back together None of those were going to impact the way the car aligns, the way the car drives, the way the car does everything tomorrow. But this huge stigma amongst people who know lets you get a lower value. Right. The same thing is true if my lot guy curbs a wheel slightly and I go out there with a Sharpie and I cover it up, the buyer is almost certainly never going to see it. And they will feel infinitely better not knowing that. Now, if they see it, they're going to become annoyed by it. They're never going to forget about it. Every time they walk up to the car, they're going to feel like, man, I got to get that stupid wheel painted. But if you, if they never see it, if they never focus on that one thing that is glaring, then they get to own the car without that concern. And most consumers deserve that chance. And, are we? At, what are the ethics of inserting yourself or your information into the transaction for that, and depriving a buyer that could blissfully enjoy the car for miles and miles from the chance to do so?
0: That's a, that's an interesting way to put it. And and Ed, you you are known for your smoothness because uh, you could sell you could sell a lot of things to to a lot of people, and and the way you put it makes it almost seem okay to sell a totally repainted car to somebody without telling them and just be like, well, if you don't find out, it doesn't matter, and that's kind of what these other guys were saying, but I recognize there's a line to that, too, and I ran into that where I was trying to find a car for a guy that I knew his standards. And everybody's different. I have customers that just don't give a rip. They want a car that hasn't been wrecked, that has a clean Carfax, and that stuff works. And so I'm not going to tell them offenders painted because they don't care. They don't want to know because they know I'm going to take the car back when they're done with it. And so if it doesn't matter to me, then it doesn't matter. But then I had a, a customer that that stuff did matter too. He was picky beyond picky. So I knew that in order to keep his trust and keep his business, I had to disclose everything. And so I disclosed on this otherwise perfect Ferrari 430 that the underside of the front bumper had been scraped. Every single friggin' one of them has been. And he didn't buy it because he couldn't get that out of his own head. And then he went and bought a car from a local dealer who has some good cars and some not good cars. And I'm sure it had been painted, the you know the underside of the front bumper, the whole front bumper, but because it didn't have scrapes and he didn't know that they had been fixed, he was totally fine with it. So yeah,
1: and I think, where's you know, that line? Are those opinions. Well, the the line is when you make it clear to the person you're buying the car from, and you know one thing that has been the most fortunate reality of being public about the cars that I buy on the internet is that people know that I have absolutely no standards. I can't open up a single social media app on my phone right now because they're all sending me pictures of a P1 floating down the road, 75% underwater, saying, Ed, this is the most you car that has ever happened. (laughs) And they're right. I will buy it. I've talked to the owner. He knows I'm interested. As soon as he sorts it out with his insurance company, we're going to have a discussion about that. But I'm, get, because... I'm getting
0: double thumbs up from the from the gallery here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so, if you have those types of preferences, you've got to make them clear to whomever is helping you buy a car, whether it's a salesperson you don't know or hopefully a trusted dealer like you, Doug, that says, look, I am the barrier. I am the filter. I am the person that makes sure that the cars that you actually get to consider buying fit your criteria and that you're not going to think you got a great deal and something below your standard is going to show up when the truck pulls up to your driveway. And so I don't think that anything that you did in explaining the history of the car was necessarily positive or negative with respect to most buyers, but if there's a good chance that somebody that could have loved that car and bought out the dealer that we know that has it that bought it totally ignorant of its history and got him out of it without them having to lose twenty thousand dollars, which seems like the inevitability at this point. So I don't know.
0: I mean, I. But then that person would have eventually lost twenty k on it because it's. I think it's not just about whether or not a person can be happy with it. It's about taking advantage of the information disparity, right? So if the dealer knows something that they're not disclosing, that they know is going to impact the resale ability of that car, regardless of whether the buyer is going to be happy with it during their tenure, if the buyer finds out that story, especially because of the financial component of, oh, nobody else on the internet is gonna buy this car. And if I sell this car down the road, then I either have to take a hit by disclosing it or live with the fact that I didn't tell the next guy either. Like there's a very real financial component, uh, diminished value to that type of story and that type of repaired damage. And my issue was that the dealer, instead of just saying, yeah, the car had a wide body kit, it's been repaired, will give you a great deal on it because they got a great deal on it. They were trying to make full hog retail on it and sell it right up there along with every other perfect, pristine paint-to-sample car with the same premium and take advantage of somebody not knowing that story.
1: Well, there's a whole lot of that happening throughout the Porsche market. But, I mean, I, I totally understand your concern. But when we think about ethics versus morality morality is ethics, but not all ethics are morality. So the context is critical when it comes to what the ethics are. So there are plenty of circumstances where making sure that your word is absolute truth are not as critical as business. There are some it's more. But I think that it's important that we look at what the car business is in order to really define what the ethics are. And I think it's different for dealers. It's different for consumers. But the problem is, it's one of the last bastions of commercial and uh, consumer-facing business that is very much negotiable, and that's obviously going away. Where right. most dealers,
0: and, and I would say, very, uh, very thinly regulated. I was talking with a, a mortgage broker friend of mine and uh, before this show and he he was like car business what what ethics in the car business and i said well we probably have the the same as as you do in the banking industry about but you guys are more highly regulated and he said well back in 2007 let me tell you like before the regulations we were writing loans to anybody and everybody nobody didn't get approved and he was a real estate broker and a mortgage broker at the same time and i'm like talk about talk about no ethics so it's not Limited to the car business, but certainly we have far less oversight than other industries.
1: Well, and somebody from that industry could let us know. But uh, now the profit to the mortgage broker has to be itemized on the sheet. Hmm. That was that. That didn't happen when I bought a house in 2010, but when I bought a house in 2018, it was. And so the mortgage broker has to set their accepted profit and they cannot negotiate from that or it's viewed as discriminatory. Mm. So in that regard, it's entirely different. And that's where the ethical line changes, all right? Because if technically I have discretion over my profit, then I can't be ethically compelled to disclose to every single buyer what the best deal I would ever give away is.
0: Right. Because it depends on the scenario.
1: Then I can't be compelled by ethics to give all of the profit away. So that's not the same thing. And the other thing that's most fascinating about the car business that every first day on the job employee doesn't understand is that the more money you make on a customer – the happier they will be with their car.
0: That is a very, very true principle. Yes.
1: And, you know, I, I walk into a car dealership having no experience really in selling anything other than personal cars, and I'm like, you are crazy. People love good deals. The problem is people buy cars that are good deals. They buy anything because it's a good deal because of the good deal. The things that they buy because they actually want the product, they don't really worry that much about the price. And so the fact that you held more gross profit, the fact that you made more money means that you didn't sell on price. You sold on the product, and that means they liked it because that means they bought it. And yeah. that, that's a really, really hard thing for people to wrap their head around. But as people start to beat you up on price, the best thing you can do as a car business is tell them to take their business elsewhere.
0: Yeah. I would say there's another principle at work there is that people who are searching for a good deal never feel like they – got it. And so they're, okay. they're, they're not yeah. happy with right. the deal right. or the car because they still somehow believe that the car dealer screwed them. So it doesn't matter how good oh. of a deal you give them. It's never good enough.
1: Cause I can tell you how much cheaper a car needs to be to buy a car you weren't going to buy anyway. And it's 30 to 40% off retail. Yeah. So there's a there's hundred cars I would buy personally tomorrow if they were cheap enough. There might be 10000 I don't know. <laughs> but, it's the, but I know how to make a car cheap enough that I don't care about anything else, even including not the least of which is whether I wanted it in the first place. Yeah. But that's not what people are doing when they go out shopping for the best deal on something. They think that they've minimized their risk and maybe they've you know, reduced it. But they don't have no risk, and they're not going to go make money on a decision they wish
0: they hadn't made. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts?
1: Unless they buy an orange Diablo. That's and,
0: that's unless right they top. buy an orange Diablo? Yeah, and then have to sell it to, yeah. to buy a house. Um, yeah. What are your th- I'm I'm very happy with that deal, by the way. It it wasn't even the car I wanted, and it was an incredible deal, yet I'm ecstatic. So, maybe I bucked the trend, but I, I will say buying a car, buying a personal car as a car dealer is extremely difficult because it is not in my nature to pay retail for anything, and yeah, that's that's hard to Good. separate.
1: Twenty percent back of retail.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that car aside, I'm talking just any car in general. It's very difficult because I just I can't get it out of my head that I'm buying this for profit and and separate that and say no, I'm not. I'm buying it for enjoyment. Um,
1: well, that's an interesting principle for another day. We should talk about why car salesmen are the worst car buyers on earth. <laughs> I, go, uh, go, into a car, go into a car dealership and ask all the salespeople to raise their hand if they have more than 10% negative equity in their car. And if they're honest, every single hand will go up.
0: Oh, you mean not like the worst to deal with, but like they're just terrible at it. Terrible at it. It's unbelievable. Uh, You know, I heard that, I don't remember who I was talking to, but they said that they conducted a study of car salesmen. And the average monthly payment of these car salesmen at this dealer was like $1,700 a month or something just astronomically unfathomable. Yep. Yeah. That I I don't know. Well, I I mean, I guess that's good because they're buying the product they're selling, right? If they put everybody else into ridiculous payments and get them upside down, like, at least they believe in what they're selling, which is a terrible deal.
1: So. That, well, usually they bought other cars badly, but either way, I think, you know, to to circle back to the topic at hand, and, I, and, and the, the, the issue that you and I had in that moment was, in the car business, the most critical thing, the only thing that matters in your business-to-business dealings is how much your word can be trusted. Yeah. And that comes down not only to your honor, but your expertise. Like, if you tell me that a car's good or you tell me a car's bad, I need to know if I can actually trust you. But... I also need to know that if you tell me something's going to happen, it is going to happen.
0: You, I, the, you raise a good point that I hadn't thought of for tonight's discussion, but I think it's incredibly relevant, right? So there's a, a delineation between whether or not you'll do what you say you will, which to me is ethics. And when you say a car's good and when it's bad, there's a line there. Some of that's ethics, right? Because there's people who know how to call a car and they say an 8 out of 10 car is a 6 out of 10, knowing that it's an 8. And then there's plenty of people that we deal with that I just have to apply an adjustment factor for because if they say a car is an 8 out of 10, I know that they suck at evaluating cars. They're not being dishonest. They just don't know the so difference know. between an 8 and a 6. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. an interesting line and- to walk until you get to know the person, whether or not they're being dishonest or whether they just suck at looking at cars.
1: But the, the first doesn't eliminate the second. Just because you're bad at your job doesn't mean that you can count on my word any less. That's an absolute. Right. The other's a best effort. Like, I can't say that, well, I meant what I said when I said it, but it turns out it wasn't true.
0: So you're saying there still should be recourse even if a person doesn't know how to call a car.
1: Well, sure. If you don't, if you call me something is incorrect, if that gt 3 rs had shown up and not been what I described it, you are released of all responsibility to abide by your commitment. Right. And we might have gotten to that bridge if we, if we continue along that path, but it's a very, very important thing. But to me, that's almost the end of it ethically is that if I say something, it has to be true. And if it's not, I have ethically violated the business expectations that anybody partaking in the activity should be entitled to hold. And, but beyond that, like oversharing or anything like that, I don't think applies in most businesses, the car business in particular.
0: Yeah. I, the issue for me, I think, is that there's so many people in the car business. And we I joke that brokers, there's a reason they're called brokers because they have broken their name. Like They're not going to take any responsibility for anything because they can't. They're not selling a half a million dollar car because they have a half a million dollars. They're selling a half a million dollar car because they want to make five grand in the middle of two people who do have half a million. But then there's just a lot of crappy dealers that I've dealt with that when the car shows up and isn't what they said it was, they start feeding me a line of car salesman BS. And I'm going, this is dealer to dealer stuff. Like I know all your lines, right? Like I'm not a retail customer. And even if I was, you shouldn't be telling them this crap anyway, you need to take the car back or you need to give me an adjustment because this car was not what you said it was. And time after time, after time, we run into people that just, you know, they're they're literally the stereotypical car salesman, and that pisses me off to no end. I've gotten a shouting, screaming match with a guy, expletives that I'm not proud of. But you know, he sold me a 911, and it was nowhere near as described. And when I went back to him on it, you know, I figured it would be easy, like you know, either send the car back or give me an adjustment. And he started feeding me all these lines of BS, and it was. You know, just like, well, don't same thing. Don't ever call me again. You're full of crap. You're dead to me. Like you're obviously a slimy used car dealer.
1: Well, and that also means something about how you have to hold yourself to a standard where that matters. And the only reason it mattered when I told you that is that you actually cared about the relationship with me. And that's what made you feel bad. And I didn't do that. That's why I said it. But it was also true. And I, I think that that's where, if you aren't either the holder of the cars or the buyers that entitle you to leverage your position in that way, then find another business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And
1: that's inherently the case is that it's a it's a business of you know. Unqualified by every standard, players, and it's very very hard to
0: trust. Yeah, well, it's most people don't have to have a license uh, or education or degree. There's no training. There's no certification, and the the bar is very very low to have an automobile dealer's license. So, it, I, I think in that sense, it attracts people who want to play unethically but then there's another so we're talking mostly about dealer to dealer there's a a dealer to customer relationship that i think is skewed because especially with internet reviews being what they are and the forums uh dealers are expected to be held to a certain standard that customers are not and i feel like there's a very very uh uneven set of scales when it comes to judging dealers versus customers and dealers are expected to honor their word. They can't change the terms of a deal or, or do anything. Um, but customers can do it willy nilly. And even with ordering a new car, I'll, I'll, you know, say I'm guilty of this, right? So back 15 years ago, when I was ordering allocations and flipping them, I would hold dealers to contracts. i will say, well, I have an earnest money deposit, a contract. You have to sell me this car. But if I didn't want to go through on the car deal, it was a generally expected practice that, well, a customer can back out of an order at any time per their preference. So there, there was an interesting, you know, and that was kind of how the industry worked. And I took advantage of that. I didn't feel that I was being unethical because in that sense, the dealers, got the allocations no matter what. They had the car coming in. They had to sell the car anyway, but that was just kind of how things worked. But looking back on it, I go, that's not really fair. Is it ethical, unethical? I don't know, but it's definitely not fair. And and from the dealer side of it now, I have customers who I've chewed out pretty severely because we had a deal contracted in writing, you know, send a truck, sign the title, do whatever and then they backed out because of preference and I just said hey, hey man, if I did this, you'd be dragging me into court or or dragging my name through the mud on the internet. But you're allowed to do it because you're a customer and I I don't like the I don't like the disparity there.
1: Well, you don't like it when you're on the wrong side of it. And I don't disagree, but at the same time, you are a service or a product provider, and you are not on an equal playing field with the consumer. And mostly because the consumer has zero protection legally. And so all of the legal protections are with you, therefore, the ethical concessions should always flow in the direction of the disenfranchised party. And on a pre owned car transaction, they have zero rights. I love the way Steve Leto talks about this and and the advice that he gives. Because like, you know, people call him trying to lemon law used cars. <laughs> and Uh, spoiler alert to anybody that doesn't know this, you have no lemon law rights. You have no rights whatsoever if you take delivery of a pre-owned car.
0: How many of them are Nissan Altima owners?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot. Uh, And I'm sure that 22% interest doesn't stop because they took the keys back to the desk. But I, I think that, you know, It's really important to understand the dynamic that exists. And the fact that it is so personal makes that hard. If you go into a store in the mall and you buy a pair of jeans, you don't get to know the salesperson. You don't spend a lot of time on paperwork. You don't try to haggle even if it's 30% off on sale. Like You don't do that. On a car deal you do, and yes, it's more money, but you don't even really do that on a house. And that's because the profits are disclosed differently and things like that. But sure. But no deal we do is like a car deal. And that's why we love doing car deals, but it's also, also why, why we hate they it. are <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so the the fact that it's different than everything else we do means that we apply the ethics of other things we do inaccurately to it. And I think that what's most important in a business-to-consumer relationship, regardless of what's being transacted, is that we really do understand what the nature of that relationship is. Your most recent question is from a guy named Joey, and he mentioned when I said overshare, are you meaning that you don't tell everything, unless someone asks you about that specific part of the car. And the answer is a little bit yes. And that sounds callous, that sounds deceitful, that sounds bad, but used car buyers should always approach the market knowing that the impetus for the quality of that vehicle is on them. They may choose to shop at a place that has a 30-day warranty or that has a certified pre-owned vehicle or something that makes them trust it more. But if you're going into a used car transaction thinking that you do not have to do diligence, you are wrong.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And even as a dealer who prides himself on oversharing you know, we post underside photos. We typically post paint meter photos. We do DMEs on GT3s, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you're right. It's still as is. It's still on the buyer um, to to perform that due diligence. And it's amazing when people get really uptight about things we should have known or should have disclosed as if the dealer is just expected to know everything about a car When sometimes, you know, in some cases we haven't even inspected it mechanically. Well, you should have known that this window motor didn't work. What? Really?
1: Well, as a dealer, you should hold yourself to a higher standard because it's a tremendous commercial opportunity to do so. Yes. But that doesn't mean you're infallible. What it should mean is that you're going to stand up for the things that you weren't able to do because of whatever limitation kept you from it.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so, again, if you'd represented it as a perfect car, and there are dealers that do that, and I, I applaud it, as stupid as it is as a business model, you know, they, they're trying to transact enough cars, but, that the, but they can't possibly know that they're wrong. But if they're wrong, they just fix it. Yeah. Now, that's because they've got such a markup. Because, but that the markup only works because of the customers that, that require
0: it. Yeah. Well, and it goes kind of back to your talking earlier about the oversharing. They don't disclose anything. And there's one dealer in particular I'm thinking of that um, their tagline is buy the best from the best. And they don't do pre-purchase inspections. They don't do test drives. They don't paint meter cars. Nothing. They clean them up and sell them. Now, are they all the best cars? No. Will they stand behind them? Usually, but are there a bunch of customers who don't ever check for, nor do they care whether one panel's been painted or what the DME is? Absolutely, and they sell for top dollar to those customers who don't care and are blissfully ignorant, to to circle back to that term. And that's a good, different than mine, but a good business model, and they have excellent margins, um, and they sell a ton of cars. And a very, very small percentage of people come back and say, well, you know, this car needed a whole lot of stuff on it. And I guess most of the time they fix it, or maybe they don't. Well,
1: and, you know, know, I do a lot of business with John Tamarian at Curated, and my relationship with him involves a a very different ethical uh, quandary and reconciliation and forgiveness. And, uh, in the same outgoing direction on my part, but I, they, he runs into that issue because he doesn't put miles on the cars. Right. So mm. he represents the absolute best of everything, but because so many of them are like ultra mileage sensitive, they sell cars every day that have problems. Right. They fix the problems. They own it, like they deal with it, but you can't sell Countach's and Diablo's and expect them to show up perfect because there never are. And so he's had to build in both from a business practice and a profit perspective, a cushion that allows him to own up to what the car is. Now, he still needs customers to be realistic about what a 90s supercar is going to be when it shows up at your door after being driven 100 miles in 10 years, right. but most of his customers get it at that point.
0: Well, and they're so, only going to drive right. it 100 miles in 10 years also. So
1: Exactly. And... and and that's one of those important things is that if that is going to be your attitude, it should change your expectation of of what you need out of a purchase. Like if if it's just going to park in your collection and there is a Mercy S V down the street from you, that is a perfect example of this. If you really aren't going to care, then don't make it anybody's problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Next question, So a follow-up from our boy Joey is that, so is that why the buyer has more rights ethically to walk away from the deal? He's the one that had asked about the oversharing idea. And the answer is absolutely. So like I said, all of the protection in a used car deal falls on the car dealer, which is a little bit counterintelligent when it comes to the fears that most consumers have. But yes, that's exactly why, you know, Non-refundable deposits are not legally non-refundable no matter what you do. Um, And it's why, yeah, until you take delivery of the car, you really don't have uh, a leg to stand on.
0: Celebrity Machines is a proud sponsor of SwitchCast. Celebrity Machines offers more than 250 different screen-accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and TV shows like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, The Fast and the Furious, Breaking Bad, and so many more. Celebrity Machines also makes our dealer insert plates as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever. If you're looking for a gift for somebody you like or for garage art for your own place, check out celebritymachines.com for more info and use promo code SWITCHCAST for a 25.39% discount at checkout. Again, Go to celebritymachines.com and use discount code SWITCHCAST. Nathan's Detailing is a proud sponsor of SWITCHCAST. Nathan's Detailing is a company in Cleveland, Ohio that provides mobile detailing services for individuals and dealerships. They also offer PPF and ceramic coating installations. With over 800 Google reviews and an impressive 4.9 star rating. Nathan's Detailing is the go-to shop for all of your detailing and protection needs. With Nathan's, convenience is key. Their mobile detailing technicians bring the power, water, and supplies to your home or work and detail your car on-site. Check out the link in our description for free interior fabric protection or leather conditioning with your purchase. At Nathan's Detailing, this smiles for you. All right, we are back and we're here with Ed Bolian talking about ethics in the car business this is a fun discussion as pretty much every discussion I have with Ed is uh, the later it goes and the more bourbon we have uh, becomes more and more interesting but usually we do that in private not on microphone <laughs> um, <laughs> in some sense the, the last time I was down there I wish I could have like I, I mean it was just a, a funny moment but you know I, not about not videotaped or something, but you just sitting in the the scuderia and me sitting in the golf cart having these deep life discussions with with bourbon and tequila it was it was it was just funny to like i think it would have been funny to be a fly on the wall or to put myself as a fly on the wall looking in on it. I thought it was funny uh most people we sit at
1: that night yep, that's for sure
0: we we what
1: uh, so we put a dent in the the reserves that night. That yeah, was, uh,
0: that was a good one. No no dents in the scud, but uh, or no, you're sitting at, you sold the scud. You're sitting in a Lamborghini, but yeah, most people sit in their living rooms in a leather couch, and <laughs> we're sitting in a golf cart in a Lambo. Anyway, Tyler, take it away. What uh, what do we got from the
2: the virtual peanut gallery here? We do have a couple of questions, but do you need a top off while we're at it? You're looking a little light over there. Yeah, probably. Can somebody fix this man up? They're not listening. They're Well, we'll take care of that after I leave. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan's going to be so mad. You'd probably just spike that mic real hard. Probably. All righty. So Joey asked something very topical. So he first asked, uh, when you said you overshare, are you meaning that you don't tell everything only if someone asks about that particular part of the car, which I think you both touched on a little bit. Uh, so then he followed it up. Uh, looking for some clarification, asking, is that why the buyer has more rights ethically to walk away from a deal?
0: Yeah. So I know Ed touched on this, but a buyer has more rights legally to walk away from a deal, and they have all the consumer protection in the world, but I think that gives them a little bit of entitlement. And I think what this discussion all comes back to, for me anyway, is just... The concept of honoring your word, especially in the niche business, the relationship-based business that I'm in, that if I give my word, there's a financial component to that, right? I have to honor it no matter how much it costs me. And it's cost me a lot often um, because somebody might come along and offer me more money for a car and I have to say, no, I gave my word to this person that I'd sell it to them. But then when they don't buy it, and then I lose that other buyer and the next buyer because of all this, you know, I don't have financial recourse with them. And I think that just bothers me because I the longer I go in this business, and the more value I place on my own word, and the higher standard I hold myself to, the more I just get really angry at other people when they don't the same thing even in little things and I don't know Ed maybe you need to teach me how to show grace in that because I'm getting a little bit cynical
1: <laughs> well it's, it's not an issue of justifying the grace it's justifying the attitude and what you've got to point to there is to say that the fact that what I say comes true has gotten me more profit from more deals and retained me more valuable customers that having to deal with whatever customer or whatever person in the industry doesn't hold them to that standard is still worth it.
0: Hmm. And that's a hard thing to not become cynical about because I see... uh, I don't want to say unscrupulous, but we'll just say gray area dealers become incredibly wealthy every day of the week. And here I am, I I won't say struggling, I'm not struggling, but you know, little small time dealer over here doing my thing and, and making smaller margins because of my oversharing. And it's frustrating. Sometimes it's not a temptation to not honor my word, but it's, it's certainly frustrating.
1: Well, All you need to do is look at the deals that you've done in the past year and think about which of those customers don't do business with dealers that are known to lie that way. Because it all goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't have quality customers and not have your word be counted on. You take your customers for granted, and I don't mean that in a bad sense, but you know that those people trust you because it's who you are. But That's that's a reflex. That's natural. That's the base level activity. And you feel bad because there are people who don't recognize that because they haven't done enough business with you. And so that's how you become okay with not making profit that you could have had if you lied or not getting customers that would have felt happier if you hadn't disclosed something. Because the only reason you've got a business is because you have customers that do trust you.
0: Yeah.
2: No, that's true. That's true
0: good point thank you yeah. all righty, the next
2: Tyler. one I've got uh, asks both of you Ed and Doug what is your advice for making money ethically flipping cars as the market takes a turn for the worse I've been successfully flipping cars since 2014 but never experienced a major downturn and that's from frequent commenter Elon Musk is sus- suspicious 43 ah uh, I always say first of all, first of go all, we ahead
1: point for adding the word ethics to a question totally, totally unrelated to ethics, <laughs> so that he could ask it.
0: That's so unethical, right that. there.
1: <laughs> but since you brought it up, go ahead, Doug.
0: No, I, I just, from a business perspective, you know, everybody's an expert when the market's going up, and you know, that's not to say the market's only increased since 2014. It absolutely hasn't. In the specialty car market, we had a fairly significant fall off after 2015 that continued through 2019 ish and only recently spiked again. But if you can make money in a down market, that means you really know what you're doing. I think it's as simple as that. And I love down markets. Uh, It sucks losing money here and there on cars, but I like them because it eliminates the riffraff and the people that are just think they're experts because they made money when cars were going up. Um, I think the the Dave Ramsey principle, and he obviously does real estate, but he says in this type of market, and this is not a Dave Ramsey thing, it's an everything thing, is you make your money on the purchase. And in an up market, you can totally screw up the purchase and then just timing will bail you out. But in a normal or a declining market, you have to be a good buyer uh, because you can't use an appreciating market to bail you out of your screw-up on the buy. So the way to make money in a down market is to buy right, and it's the same way you make money in any market, really.
1: And there's two ways to buy right. One is to identify the target car, which is very hard because how are you going to see it? if it's not marketed beyond you, meaning that you're in a much more competitive environment than you would like to be. The better way, and what I have made an actual living on, is being the guy that the people who have access to the cars knows wants them. I called you, Doug, because I knew you were a buyer of painted sample GT3 RSs in 2016. And so that's why we put a deal together and that's why you had the exposure to offend me in the way that you did. But in the same way that you won't buy branded titled, garbage history supercars, that means that if somebody offers you one, you know the first person to call is me. And there's an awful <laughs> lot of people on this planet that know that to be true, that if there is something so bad that no matter how low your threshold is, you will not own it. There is a man who will look past all the damage, all the smells, all the title brands, all the problems, all the deferred maintenance, everything that you could not want about a car, and he will write you a check or send you a wire as soon as the banks are open, and that is me. And so that's what I tell anybody. If you know what you want, find the person who has access to it but probably doesn't want it more than you, and that's how they come flowing into the inbox.
0: You know, I I feel like you should sponsor this podcast. Honestly, I feel like this entire episode has just been one big commercial for Ed and Doug's car buying preferences. That's it. That's it. You know, but to your point, going back to the specialty of of knowing what you're buying and, and making known to people what you buy rather than just trying to throw a bunch of stuff at a wall and see what sticks, that's why I founded GT Vault was to put a brand and, and kind of put in a box my Porsche GT specialty because I can't uh, I can't limit switch cars to only doing Porsche GT cars because I just I have too many customers that want too many different things um, but that's been brilliant because it's uh, focused it even more to the point that people are starting to think of it as its own brand and go, oh, Porsche GT car, that's who I call, that's who I email. So, um, yeah, just like...
1: Well, you're also creating a different buying experience through GT Vault than you do through switch cars simply due to the nature of representation.
0: Yeah, talk about oversharing.
1: <laughs> well, and that, but the, the idea is, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, But if a transaction happens facilitated by GT Vault, you've made it clear to the customer, to the seller of the car, the owner of the car before the transaction, that we are representing this car as needing nothing. And if I deliver a car based on a transaction here, making it perfect is up to you.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a combination of things. So mostly we've represented cars that are very limited, if not no stories. Um, And our point is not to only represent those cars and to knock bad cars, but more it's about transparency because most of the cars we've picked apart on there have been storied cars that are represented as not storied cars and the the model of GT Vault is the transparency so a, a seller knows that if their car is perfect it will get the recognition it deserves and if it's not we're going to represent it as such so the seller has to be signed up as well to be you know to be transparent like you said
1: exactly and that's a wonderful way for a transaction to go
0: so that's that's been fun. It has been interesting, though, the past couple of years because once the COVID market took off, GT Vault was, in a sense, bankrupt. It was useless because nobody gave a rip about the history of cars. It was the same thing with houses. People waived inspections. Um, so I feel like home inspectors must have gone on vacation. Nobody wanted transparency. They were just desperate buyers. And all of a sudden, GT Vault is become a huge thing again because people want that transparency the sellers aren't automatically getting what they want so now they need help selling them the buyers are able to be competitive again and so they want the best option of their options so it's been fun to just kind of wait that out and all of a sudden be wanted and needed again for my oversharing
1: (laughs) yeah makes sense makes sense Yeah. What other questions?
0: Um, So one other thing I had um, was, and we don't have to go crazy into this, but I think this is an interesting discussion is the ethical nature of markups over sticker with dealers. And obviously this has been a big thing the last couple of years, but you know, let's talk Corvettes, right? So Corvette buyers are notoriously cranky. I'm not going to say old men, but they're just cranky people, and they hate any markup over sticker. They think it's immoral, it's unethical, it should be illegal. And we've seen different memos issued by Ford and Chevrolet about markups over sticker, about you know not honoring contracts to sell at sticker, et cetera, et cetera, and. I find an interesting dichotomy there because people get all uptight about selling over stickers saying it's unethical, but then they're the first people to want a dealer to sell under sticker when the market requires it. So I wanted your input there. John and I discussed it at greater length a few weeks ago, but I wanted your input on the whole over sticker craze.
1: Well, let's just start with the underlying idea that we all agree that demand drives pricing. And people aren't asking for prices that they're not getting. Nobody is sitting out here just waiting on somebody to come pay for it. But let's use a much better example that's a lot easier but to
0: use. You, punching hold bed. on. You, you say that, though, right? The underlying assumption. But that's actually not the assumption. I feel like that's the fundamental issue is, is all these people complaining won't admit that demand drives it. They say the dealers and the flippers are unethical, they're evil because they're driving the prices up and if the manufacturer goes to fix pricing that'll fix all these problems. No,
1: it will not. It will destroy the businesses of the of the people selling the cars. But let's use a better example for the sake of this discussion. You're Ferrari and you can make Let's just say it's 10,000 cars a year and you have 50,000 buyers a year. What do you do?
0: You, do you, you sell make 10,000 cars. How 10,
1: people <laughs> to walk in through the door? No. No. You have to sell them to the most qualified people that add the most value to your big picture business plan the people that will put the most options on them, the people that will trade them back to you, the people that will not flip them for personal gain, the people that will not export them into disenfranchised markets, the people who will, every time you ask them to do something, do exactly that thing. Now, fortunately, if you put all those terms on it, it alienates at least 80% of those 50,000 people, enough that you can sell your cars and have the quality of customers you want. But all those other 40,000 are mad that there were strings beyond, I walk in, I see a car I like, and I buy it for under what I know its market value to be.
0: Including Jay Leno, who will never buy a Ferrari because of that.
1: Exactly. And that's because he's made a conscious decision. He could obviously do it. He could pay market price for things and he could buy old Ferraris at what the markets decided that they are, but he's decided that that is a principle of his and he's not going to play the game. I have in general made the same decision as I know that you have, because there's not a new Roma and a GT four Luso stashed somewhere behind your building, because I just don't want to buy that many new cars amongst the people that see me buy cars i love for them to know that if ed bought it it was real cheap real bad and nobody else wanted it rather than ed is out trying as hard as he can to buy the cars that the world is most competitive for but the same thing can be said about a brand new forerunner they are in an impossible situation where they have extremely limited supply far below normal volumes and they have much higher demand and they have to take advantage of every transactional opportunity both from an end user perspective and significantly from a profit perspective and so there is absolutely nothing wrong with a business asking any price for any good on any day in any circumstance unless it is medically necessary for the recipient to have And the government has decided that they are going to subsidize the transaction. If it is a free and open market deal, they can charge whatever they want. And it is the consumer's right to go elsewhere if they can find a better deal.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I'm with you. You're preaching to the choir there, and I think probably to most of our audience as well. I just I find it amazing that people are have the pitchforks out for these dealers, you know, wishing for them to go bankrupt so it'll teach them a lesson for selling cars over sticker. And I'm just going, hey man, people are paying it. Bottom line, like if you don't pay it, they won't charge over sticker because they can't. End of well, they're story.
1: Wish. And when you hear about disruption. In the retail market business and this idea that we're going to somehow decide that Tesla isn't actually breaking the law in every state by selling cars directly from manufacturer to consumer, they're going to realize why there are layers and layers and pages and lines of things that protect them as consumers from manufacturers by way of car dealers and there is not lemon law technically on cars bought directly from manufacturers. All of the language is from dealerships.
0: Well, but won't that become a new law? I mean, eventually?
1: Eventually, but that will be because
0: people, consumers get
1: in that context are being taken advantage of. Yeah. And you could say that lemon law is less necessary now than it was 30 years ago when cars were inherently less reliable. But then that would mean that you've never walked into a McLaren dealership. And so there's an awful lot that, that exists in the way that cars are sold that is necessary to protect consumers. Now, people, you know, what we've talked a lot about whether used car consumers have any protection under law. And the answer is they do not. Uh, However, there is a ton of protection for consumers of new cars on insane amounts. And the dealers are, in many cases, a lot more responsible than the manufacturers are in those equations. I mean, lemon law notwithstanding, but there's a whole lot that you can do legally to a car dealer that that doesn't disclose something on a new car that uh, you
0: don't have any right to of course, if it's pre-owned. yeah I that thought just popped into my head about the manufacturers and and people think that the manufacturers are inherently good. but I'm thinking about like I, I mean countless examples of manufacturers making absolute garbage, the Ford six liter diesel uh, power Stroke engine. That was not ready for the market, but they forced it to market anyway. The uh, 4.6 liter dual overhead cam engine in the Lincoln Aviator that had issues almost from year one, and they never issued a TSB, never issued a recall, and stuck everybody with it. Uh, the Ford Fusions, for that matter, as well. Uh, Porsche and the IMS bearings. Um, you know, Porsche refused to admit. Uh, culpability in that, even after they lost a class action lawsuit. So you know, people love and worship and and you know bow at the feet of these manufacturers, Porsche especially, as being this wonderful company. And yet they're screwing people left and right. BMW with the rod bearing issues. I mean, time after time after time. And uh, you bring up a really really good point about the dealer kind of being the the go-between that ensures there's legal protection for the customers uh, and some sort of recourse.
1: Legally in the equation, the dealership is on the side of the customer in buying a car from the manufacturer. Mm. That is how it is set up legally in American culture.
0: Yeah. 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 So, do people with Teslas not have lemon law protection? Then
1: they could fight around it, and I know that they have. Um, I I would I would think that any lawyer worth their salt could justify that the delivery centers are legally acting as dealers, uh, even if all they do is remove the shipping plastic. You could call that a PDI. So I assume that it holds up but i mean
0: didn't tesla argue that in order to get around the laws that prohibited them from selling directly to customers i i thought they found some legal little technicality i'm
1: not as well read on that as i should be to comment on it but i know that there's a lot of states they're not allowed to sell cars in so right it's a it's a thing
0: we're happy to have Nuts for Sticks as a sponsor of SwitchCast. Nuts for Sticks is a fantastic merchandise site where you can get t-shirts, car related t-shirts that usually also have dad jokes and puns on them they have a great selection of high quality t-shirts there so go check them out at nutsforsticks.com and use discount code switchcast for 10 percent off your entire order again that's nutsforsticks.com discount code switchcast switchcast is brought to you by boxcast BoxCast is a live streaming company based in Cleveland, Ohio, and they serve broadcasters and viewers around the world. Their founders launched BoxCast back in 2013 with one purpose, to make people part of the experience. If you're looking to live stream your podcast, church service, car show, sporting event, your wedding, or even your cannonball attempt, BoxCast is an easy, flexible live streaming platform for organizations and individuals. BoxCast is so easy, we're broadcasting this from a phone. Head over to switchcars.com slash BoxCast for your free trial. Again, it's switchcars.com slash BoxCast for your free trial.
1: Julian Higgins just asked, has there ever been an issue where you sold a car that had major issues shortly after the sale, and how did you approach it to reconcile, even if it was unprecedented and not your fault? <laughs> uh, yes, and... Uh, Every one of them that wore a certain badge—that was the case—within seven days of delivery, and you had to have pretend shot voice on the phone. Like, what? <laughs> it did <it, it>, what? <laughs> Is that Lotus oh, or Land Rover? Oh, uh, no, no, different British company.
0: But uh, uh, all of them, yeah, Aston Martin. That, uh, uh,
1: well, that one does too, yeah. yeah so it, 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 it happens for sure. And you, you know, but again, it is your job as a dealer in that equation to advocate for the consumer to make sure their warranty claim is paid in an expedited fashion, that they are reconciled with their car as quickly as possible, and that it goes back to them in the best form that it can be provided in. But if you're just the manufacturer, you're going to say no. I mean, do you yeah. know how many manufacturers don't have loaner car provisions? Almost all of them. So if you want to have a car to drive while yours is being fixed, you need dealerships. Or we have to change the paradigm in which these guys operate. So it's like, you know, I understand that people see this target of a dealership as being the villain in the equation, but the dealer is on your side. They just happen to be, who you see your money going to and that's never pleasant in any transaction.
0: I think the dealers have done it to themselves a little bit though in how they manage the sales, the customer interaction from a sales perspective. And in not adapting quickly enough to I think both the uh you know the new type of negotiations and and, and uh, customer expectations that the internet has created and just in trying to continue to be sleazy and, 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 you know, not the negotiations are sleazy, but let's be honest. You feel dirty when you go into a car dealership and it shouldn't take four hours to buy a car. So I think they've shot themselves in the foot a little bit from that perspective and not adapting quickly enough and creating a pleasant customer experience to where... You know, if we charge 50 grand over MSRP, well, here's the reason why. And and building some level of trust from the customers instead of this uh, antagonistic type of negotiation.
1: Well, that may be true, but the people who are complaining about a four-hour paperwork and delivery process don't understand that were it not for their demand for consumer protection, none of that would be required. All of that paperwork is there to protect them.
0: It doesn't take that long to do, though.
1: But Well, it should, because everybody should read every page, but they don't. And yes, it can be done quicker, and you and I have had people in and out in 15 minutes with every piece of paperwork signed and a deal that would legally hold water, but it's a very, very different world now. The other thing that a lot of people should understand is that in 90 out of the last 100 years, most car dealerships, on a new car perspective- have operated at a loss running into the last five days of the month or the last five days of the quarter or the last five days of the year. And the only reason that all the deals that they made have been okay is that they have relied on bonuses and trunk money and incentives and volume compensation that they get from the manufacturers. yes. So today we're in a world where that is different. There are not these kinds of rebates because there is much more demand. But in all of those cases, they haven't been grateful to the dealerships that have been willing to risk tremendous financial loss in order to create the deals that they required in order
0: to sign something. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Tyler, I think you had a question.
2: Yeah, so I got a handful here. Uh, first up, Devin R has two questions. Uh, start with the first one. Uh, they He's got to pay for the second one. Oof, we'll have uh, Ethan take care of that. I, th- and, uh, I think there's a button. Below. <laughs> Is there?
0: Yeah, there's support buttons. Yes. Oh, it's not Absolutely. one of the
2: subscribe, like, smashing things. Like I don't know what. It, I'm, I'm not six a 6 year I don't can know. tell you how to <laughs> smash that like button. All right. So first up, oh, yeah. uh, they ask, what grounds does a customer have for undisclosed cosmetic issues on a normal car? Theirs, for example, has a poorly fixed or has a bunch of poorly fixed rock chips on the hood that were masked by a short lasting, short lasting wax job. Uh, that's something you probably should have looked at.
0: Uh, in that scenario, it's pretty much as is. Different states, as far as I know, have laws regarding disclosure of paintwork. But uh, man, good luck with that. Half the dealers don't know how to find paintwork and poorly masked rock chips you're sol
2: that's as is <laughs> look closer next time well yeah or it could be like a car i bought one time you I mean, had it you had it shipped here and you walked out with a paint meter in five seconds we're like this entire side of the car has been painted <laughs> i didn't yeah, but care how many, but... how many dealers have a paint meter on hand and yeah All right. The second part of their question, uh, they ask if you both can touch on how the two ships that had catastrophic losses affected market availability and market prices.
0: Well, ships go down all the time. Um, The first one, I think, was a bigger deal because there are so many expensive cars on it and because there are so many EVs on it. And so it burned for friggin' ever. So that was more newsworthy. And probably the second one was newsworthy because the first one was, Uh, but it's not uncommon for ships to go down. I think it's just exacerbated a problem that existed already. And that's why it became a bigger deal. I don't know. Ed thoughts on that.
1: Well, there were, it was about 5,000 cars lost in the first one. And it was only about, I think two to 300 that were lost on the second ship. So different magnitudes of impact, but that 5,000 cars for the high-end brands of Volkswagen Group was pretty much a month of allocation. And so you think about the profits that were counted on, the service hours that were counted on, obviously the disappointed customers, the fact that the most of those cars had to be rebuilt. Uh, they had to open up uh, manufacturing lines and uh, things like that. It was a big, big deal. And when you look at, you know, the Porsche market was the biggest impacted because so many of them were high yeah. in Porsches and 9-11. Like, the number of new 9-11s delivered over the last 24 months compared to the prior 24 months is a fraction. And it is going to impact the new and used market for a very, very long time, um, you can view that as very positive because your residual values are going to stay strong regardless of economic conditions, which is something that I am not usually quick to say. But when there is no supply, the underlying demand does not have to increase for values to stay strong. And, and I think that's what we're going to see. And there's a lot of you know, parts of the automotive market where that's going to be the case.
2: Okay, next up is Julian H. Uh, They ask, has there ever been an instance where you sold a car and it had major issues shortly after the sale? How do you approach that or reconcile even if it was unprecedented and not your fault?
0: So, Ed, answer that from a new car side uh, earlier. On a used car side, that's totally different because, you know, for us, it's kind of situational. Um, Used cars are sold as is but at the same time, we inspect them here. So, you know, we disclose what we know. Um, it's kind of the old saying, like, uh, cars are machines, and machines don't tell you when they're about to break, they tell you when they're broken. Now, you know, that's not a, a it doesn't always hold water, because a belt tension or, you know, pulley is is going to alert you when it's, it's feeling pain before it breaks. But, But in a lot of cases, that is true, and people will buy cars, and 100 miles later, something will break, and they go, well, it's your fault, or you should have known, or you inspected it. And I go, we can't predict the future, man. Like It is a used car, and in some scenarios, just from a eliminate the difficulty, show a customer some goodwill, and that's legally what it is, it's goodwill, we'll just say, you know what, whatever. We'll fix it. Because, you know, maybe we should have known, maybe we shouldn't have, but let's just fix it and not have a customer unhappy with us. And in that sense, it's more buying a customer's loyalty than doing what's right. Uh, Because in my mind, we did what was right. We inspected it, or we had it sent out to a very qualified service shop that specializes in that vehicle. You know, like in one scenario, we spent $8,000 with an independent shop. They did everything under the sun and then the guy had to spend some money afterwards and came back to us and I showed him the service receipt and said we trusted this company because they know what they're doing with these cars so like we did our job but I'm still gonna send you a check because I want us to look good was it a ethical matter absolutely not did he deserve it no but it was just a it was a goodwill thing And that's kind of a case-by-case basis because sometimes it's just like, ah, we're not going to do it because, you know, some people just want to push for anything they can. And they're totally happy with the car and they just, you know, want to take advantage of it. But you have to be careful because I heard of a friend of mine went through this years and years ago, and I don't know what the case law is now, he spooked me because he sold a used car as a cheap three, $4,000 car and something wasn't right. And he just was like, okay, I'll be a good guy. I'll, I'll send you a couple hundred dollar check to fix it. And the guy then took him to court and said, well, that constitutes a warranty. So now you have to like, give me a three year warranty, fix anything else that goes wrong. And the judge sided with the customer and this used car dealer had to give the guy a three-year warranty on this $3,000 beater because he gave him a $200 goodwill check to fix something so obviously we have you know a legal uh, hold harmless when we send somebody a goodwill check but like it's crazy what people will take advantage of so you got to be careful that you know, the line between Goodwill and making a customer happy versus a customer that will never be happy and is just trying to take advantage of a situation.
1: Well, there's two parts of that that are absolutely critical for consumers to understand. And the first is, at the point that you realize that you have received something that is not what you expected it to be, you want to let the dealer know in a non-combative way. Whether your car is broken or it isn't, it is not an emotional thing, and it shouldn't be for either of you. And so I get people that contact me all the time, and they are like, I just bought this car, and this is wrong with it. And the first thing I say is, have you already posted a bad review online? And almost always, their answer is yes. And I said, well, you just lost all of your leverage. Because the only incentive that a used car selling dealer has to fix something after you took delivery of it is is preserving their reputation. And if you already used
0: that... And or the relationship.
1: Zero incentive to do so. Yeah. The other aspect of it is, if you say, all right, this is broken... This is how much it costs to fix. If you pay me that, I will be happy and I will not be a problem. Most people are like, fix that and then we'll figure out what else is wrong. And the problem is if you're not giving the dealership the opportunity to make you happy, they're still not incentivized to say yes to anything. The other thing is that you should hope that they say no.
2: Hmm.
1: Because if they say yes, it means they made enough money on your deal to pay for it. (laughs) And you should hope that you were a shrewd enough negotiator that you got (laughs) the best deal possible and they're not sitting on enough profit to pay for your laundry list of petty complaints once you took delivery of the car that you should have inspected in the first place.
0: Yeah. And that's therein lies a whole nother, I guess, ethical quandary of goodwill that, you know, whether or not a dealer makes right on it often depends on how much money they made on it. Because a dealer is not yes, going to make a distinction between right and wrong. They're just going to say, well, I made 10 grand and you want two grand. It's sold as is. We have zero culpability in this. You're being completely unreasonable, but I made 10 grand, so have the two grand. And then on the flip side, they might be completely justified. The buyer might be completely justified in their complaint, and a dealer made a thousand bucks and doesn't want to give up all their profit plus another grand, and they'll say no stick it where the sun don't shine because you signed an as is contract. So there's a, there's an interesting discussion there too.
2: Yep. Yep. We got time for one more. Alrighty. Ben's blogger. They say I sell new cars currently sell them over sticker. I think as most dealers are no kidding. (laughs) Five years ago, I sold them under invoice. Any feelings on market-based pricing on new cars?
1: feel
2: like that's asked and answered counselor yeah i i'm gonna
0: answer a question that wasn't asked i think moving forward there will probably be more of a fixed price model which we probably should have gone to 10 years ago as opposed to this vagary where the dealer sets the price and everybody negotiates and you get a different deal you know between two dealers that are 15 miles apart and it just i think that situation of negotiation sets people up for this cantankerous attitude towards dealers. Um, Whereas if it's, if it's a set price and you either want it or you don't, I think that eliminates a lot of the issues and, you know, it's up to the manufacturer to determine the market and set market pricing through whether or not it's additional markup or, you know, adjustment up or down. Yeah. Uh, adjustment up is seen as bad and down is seen as, well, that's what the market is. you know, Greed versus free market.
1: That's and that's what should horrify you. Because the, the total opposite is true. If you're getting a huge discount on a car, you should have gotten a bigger
0: one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good way to put it. I'm going to save that quote. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that bombshell, thank you, Ed, for, for being here tonight. I don't have to ask where people can find you on the Internet because they can find you on the Internet. Uh, but if you want to follow Ed and you don't already, uh, check him out on Instagram, YouTube, Vinwiki, uh, download the Vinwiki app, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, yeah, thanks, Ed. It's always a pleasure always a pleasure Uh,
1: pleasure is mine y'all so much good job informing people all
0: right thank you very much and i will talk to you soon it is looking forward it it is time now for our props and our
2: props golly do you need more whiskey doug has nothing to do with the whiskey
0: (laughs) i just can't I, i have dyslexia in my head i was already on switch cars and those syllables made it into flops props and flops brought to you by switch cars switch cars is the enthusiast dealership where we buy sell consigned service and store only cars that we like ourselves check out our handpicked inventory at switchcars.com our pick of the week from switch cars inventory and this is not yet on switchcars.com I like doing that with my picks of the week uh, is a 2005 Boxster S yeah, you might say that's kind of a boring car, but I think they're just a really, really good value. And it's white over tan interior, which I love. Total you might say it's a chick color combo, but I like chick colors. I like burgundies and blues and white. So yeah, it's a stereotypical chick Porsche in a chick color, but I would own it and I have a beard and drink bourbon and shoot guns, so I'm manly. Yeah. Uh, so you should, too. And it's a stick shift. Uh, it is, I think it's 30 grand. It's got like 40,000 miles, brand new tires, very clean car. Check it out if you want a, a good summer driver. The prop and the flop of the week really are the exact same thing. Um, you've probably heard about this on the Internet because it's been all over. I find it Freaking hilarious. But we'll say the flop is California Governor Gavin Newsom. Pretty much everything he does is a flop. But anyway, uh, decreeing that by 2035, all new cars sold in the state of California have to be EVs. I did get that right, right? It's not 50%. Literally every single car sold in California has to be EVs. So, if you guys remember, if you have a memory, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, California tried this as well. I think it was like 5% though. And literally, they just they had to go back on this decree because nobody wanted EVs. I mean, back then, you had like the Honda, not the Honda Insight. That was a hybrid. What was the, the Honda EV1? Yeah. EV plus. The what? EV Plus. EV Plus. I thought it was the EV1. Chevy, Chevy. 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 G-M. G-M. G- whatever. Gosh. Terrible. I it's because I care so little about <laughs> electric vehicles. That's that's my excuse. Um, yeah. So they tried it and it failed because people didn't want them. Uh, so I have a feeling this is just political posturing and this isn't going to be a thing because good luck forcing everybody to buy something that they don't want. Although maybe people in California do. But anyway, so he decreed that. Not like two weeks later, California and the electric companies out there were experiencing their notorious rolling blackouts and they asked customers not to plug in their EVs. (laughs) Ah, The irony is so delicious to me. Uh, Yeah, so that's... That's it. I don't have to say any more about that because it speaks for itself. Anyway, uh, two quick things uh, as a matter of mention. Uh, This weekend, we're doing another East Coast trip. Uh, We are headed out to the Audrain Concours or the Audrain Motor Week, and uh, it's our first time there uh but it's supposedly hailed as like the the Pebble Beach of the East Coast it is a very hoity toity concours event we have to wear blazers on Sunday outside thankfully it's not August uh but anyway so if you're there um you know enjoy it and and say hi if you're not going to be there you should think about going cuz it's going to be a fantastic event with some really really incredible cars in a Amazing New England setting with mansions and rocks and water and lighthouses and lobster and, yes, all the New England things. Uh, Yes, and then, uh, keep an eye out, we have gotten the opportunity to sell a very special collection, Uh, not the entire collection, not the Porsches, but some cars from the late Chuck Stoddard collection, who was known for uh, owning a Porsche dealer for a very long time, as well as uh, racing and having a stunning, stunning Private collection of cars, which uh, most people have never seen. It was it was kept from the public eye. But we have eleven cars from his collection here at the shop Uh, they will be coming up for sale in one big auction individually but all at the same time on bring a trailer That's probably going to be in about two weeks and we're going to have a uh, cocktail preview at our shop putting all the cars on display so if you might be interested in any of those cars uh, contact us in advance and keep your eye out on bring a trailer so we're very very excited about that there's some incredibly unique cars with unbelievable history and just stacks on stacks of documentation you know six seven eight binders full of documentation on some of these cars really really cool so with that plug in we want to thank you for joining us tonight uh we're sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions there was a lot of them there were some good ones uh but uh you know time has its constraints so um Want to thank our co host or our guest tonight, Ed Bolian. Uh, very smart guy. Always appreciate his input and his wit. We want to thank our sponsors Boxcast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, Stephen Holm Woodworking, and Nathan's Detailing. And our producer, Ethan Huffnagel. Our bumper music is provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream the full album on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available Friday in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. as we look forward to answering your automotive questions to help you on the drive of your life.
1: Go Doug!